Hello, this is Alex Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 59th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today I'll be talking about the RICs, the Royal Irish Constabulary, Auxiliaries, and Black and Tans during the Irish War of Independence. First, a few announcements. So, one is the familiar betting for money bit. Um, if you enjoy this podcast or my TikTok, um, it would mean the world to me if you joined my Patreon. I would love to be able to produce this podcast full time, and it's only going to be possible with your support. So, please join my Patreon. Every little bit helps, even if it's just a dollar a month. The second bit announcement is that I am going to be launching a book club. For my viewers. It's going to be called Around the World Book Club, and basically the rule is that we have to read books from authors around the world. So there could be white U.S. writers that we read and English white writers that we read, um, but the goal is to get away from that and read authors um, from Eastern Europe, Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, Africa, Latin America, things like that. So our first book is going to be The Shadow King by Maza Mengist. Um, it is about Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And it's about the women soldiers who were left out of the historical record. Um, and I'm just reading from the back of the book. At its heart is orphaned maid Hurut, who finds herself tumbling into a new world of thefts and violations of betrayals and overwhelming rage. What follows is a heart-rendering and unputtable exploration of what it means to be a woman at war. Um, and so keep an eye open both on Patreon, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my website. I'll be putting up a sign-up form, and I will be announcing a meet, a meet update pretty soon. I think it's probably going to be the end of February. So yeah, very, very excited about that. And uh, now that we've got the announcements out of the way, it's time for making history. So we're right now in the middle of the week-long strike for Palestine. Hassan, who is a reporter in Palestine, she's Palestinian herself, and she's been going through hell, has asked for the world to take part in a strike from January 21st to January 27th. So if this is the first time you're hearing about it, it's not too late to join. Um, and you've already been participating. Thank you. If you can afford to take time off and join a protest, please do so. It's probably one of the more effective ways of taking part in the strike. But if you can't, like me, to be fully transparent, I can't. There are other ways to take part in the strike. So one is to go to work and just do the absolute bare minimum. Another is if you are going to work, gather like-minded co-workers and talk about the Palestinian genocide and organize around getting your company to call for a ceasefire or even just to have HR organize a space where people can come and grieve together, basically trying to make your work environment more sympathetic to what is happening in Palestine. Don't buy anything superfluous during the entire week when possible. Use your lunch hours slash breaks to call your representatives and demand they support a ceasefire. Also tell them you refuse to support a regional war and you refuse to support any further military aggression against Yemen. And if you are calling a Democrat, you need to tell them that if the Democrats do not stand up for a ceasefire and an end to this genocide, 
then you will not be voting for them in the 2024 election because right now that's all they care about. Also, if you're in Chicago, um, I believe the Alders voted to postpone the vote on declaring a ceasefire. Um, but call them, tell them, you know, hey, we want Chicago to be in support of Palestine. We want Chicago to demand President Biden call for a ceasefire in Palestine. And there are literally of hundreds of other events occurring all over the world during this week. So follow the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, follow um, Never Again, follow Jewish Voices for Peace. There's a bunch of Palestinian youth organizations and, and student organizations you can follow. Follow, if you're in Chicago, uh, Chicago Alliance Against Political Repression. Just follow all those accounts. They have a bunch of events that are going on that you can take part in. Um, and now it is time to discuss the RIC the auxiliaries, and the black and tans during the Irish War of Independence. So you may be sitting there and you're thinking, all right, Alex, this is, that's the wrong war. We've already talked about the Irish War of Independence. We're supposed to be talking about the Irish Civil War. And you'd be correct, except I noticed that I never actually did an episode on <laughs> the British forces during my season on the Irish War of Independence. But also, the reason why I'm doing this episode now is because next week we'll be talking, or not next week, but next episode, um, we will be talking about the um, Civic Guard mutiny. And the Civic Guard mutiny happens because of relations with the RICs and the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries before the treaty was signed. So, basically, to, un- to truly understand the tension between the various factions of Irish society following the signing of the Irish Treaty, we have to take a step back and look at how the British Empire managed their Irish colony. Today we'll be taking a, retros- we'll be taking a retrospective look at one of the key features of British control over Ireland, the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RICs, the Auxiliaries, and the Black and Tans. Part 1. The Development of Policing in Ireland England has struggled to assert control over Ireland since 1199, when Henry II divided Ireland up into counties and implemented English law on the island. The effort to implement English law, it started in 1199, and it would continue into the 18th century, with the British forces forcing compliance through a combination of land theft, a military presence, and encouraging loyal subjects to migrate to Ireland to quote-unquote civilize them. There was a lot of violence that happened during this period, there's a lot of cultural erasure that happened in this period. This episode's just going to focus on the policing aspect, but I do want to call out that it wasn't, there's a lot of stuff going on, and there's a lot of um, harm that the English did to the Irish in their attempt to colonize them. By the 1540s, the Tudors took land that originally belonged to the Irish and gave it to loyal Protestants, laying the seeds for the Protestant and Catholic divide that sadly still troubles Ireland today. After several unsuccessful uprisings, the Irish were stripped of many rights through the penal laws of the late 1690s and early 1700s. These laws ensured the Protestants would be in control, while the Catholic Irish were barred from legal professions, positions in government, and holding commissions in the army. However, they could still enlist as grunts, so at least England had a good source of cannon fodder. It also presented the Catholic Irish from buying, leasing, or inheriting land from Protestants, ensuring the land that had been taken would remain within Protestant families and wouldn't return to the original owners. Clearly, these laws caused great tension between the Protestant and Catholic inhabitants of Ireland, and so in 1715, they established 300 baronies in Ireland. Ireland. These barons were supposed to appoint constables, who would then create an effective system of Protestant watchmen to promote law and order in the island. 
This protective force struggled, countering the many agrarian uprisings and acts of violence. Prime Minister William Pitt, frustrated in his efforts to establish a police force in England proper, passed the 1786 Dublin Police Act, which established a police force in Ireland. It also allowed for experimentation in policing to first be applied to Ireland before being used in England, Wales, or Scotland. Many historians agree that the Dublin Police Act created the modern British police force. This marked Ireland as quote-unquote different and open to experimentations in not only policing but welfare and education. The bill created Dublin Castle and divided Dublin into four districts. The castle only recruited Protestants into their new police force even though Dublin was 75% Catholic. The Irish County Act of 1787 expanded this new police force into counties Tipperary, Kerry, Kilkenny, and Cork. The 1798 uprising, in which Irish rebels, with assistance from the French, although it was very minimal assistance, I must say, tried to win their independence from England, terrifying London. The all-Protestant Irish Parliament passed the Dublin Police Act of 1799, centralizing the police force even further, and dissolved themselves by agreeing to the Act of Union in 1800. The Act of Union was one of the biggest blows to Irish independence, as it formally integrated Ireland into the British Empire. This meant that instead of having its own parliament in Ireland itself, it would be ruled directly from Westminster in an attempt to quote-unquote bind Ireland more closely to Britain through a policy of cultural assimilation. And quote is from Brian McCarthy's book, The Civic Guard Mutiny, page 21. And that's also why, um, if you think about my first season when I talk about absenteeism and why Sinn Féin didn't sit in parliament, this is exactly why. Because uh, the Act of Union basically said if you want to be represented, you have to send your members over to England to sit in the British Parliament. Ireland does not have its own parliament or any form of representative government within the island itself. In reality, true power over Ireland laid in the authorities in Dublin Castle, the Lord Lieutenant, and the Chief Secretary. In 1814, Chief Secretary Robert Peel created the Peace Preservation Force, or Peelers as they were commonly known, this new police force was under direct control of Dublin Castle, wore uniforms and were armed, and recruited Catholics as well as Protestants. In 1822, Peel created the County Constable, another armed police force tasked with ensuring that the 5,000 constables around the country met regulations and standards. The County Constable also recruited Catholics, and Daniel O'Connell, a famous Irish politician who was fighting for Catholic emancipation at the time, argued that Catholics should join the police force in an attempt to show that Catholics could contribute to British society and to fight against just to fight against discrimination and just you'll know, basically prove like, give us rights, give Catholics rights, and we'll be good citizens. Um Because the County Constable and the Peelers were created during a period of great unrest in Ireland, i.e. Dan- Daniel's campaign for Catholic emancipation and then later the the end of the Act of Union, which he fails. Uh, the continued agrarian unrest, and the Typh Wars, they were increasingly seen as representatives of Protestantism and the foreign English government. So they're starting to be seen as this foreign entity within the island. Within the island. To counter the growing unrest, the police passed the 1836 Police Reform Act. The police were reorganized into two different groups, the Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the DMP. The Constabulary was a semi-military police force responsible for policing the entire country. Their officers were men of experience in the British military, but two-thirds of the ranks were Catholics. The recruit was required to be healthy and able to read and write. 
Now, normally this would have been a barrier for Catholics, but at the time, England had expanded the number of schools in Ireland, and so the constabulary actually had an influx of Irish Catholics uh, candidates to choose from. Once the recruit was accepted, he had to undergo three months of training in Phoenix Park, Dublin. By 1843, the Irish constabulary was establ- had established 1,400 barracks all over the country. The Irish constabulary had a strict code of conduct upheld by the officers, many who had experience in the British Army. To keep order and to gather spies, the Irish constabulary infiltrated all aspects of society by being responsible for road regulations, census taking, weights and measures inspections, you know, animal permits, any kind of permit, and collecting agricultural statistics. The Irish people may have tolerated the Irish constabulary if not for their role in the Great Famine. In 1840, Ireland experienced a terrible potato blight and England purposely let the Irish starve and also let the Protestant landlords evict approximately 90,000 tenants a year between 1849 and 1850. The Irish constabulary was responsible for actually evicting the people. This was unforgivable for many Irish people and the Irish constabulary was formally identified as agents of England, not Ireland. In 1867, the Irish Republican Brotherhood attempted the failed Finian uprising. The Irish constabulary was responsible for crushing the rebellion, and Queen Victoria rewarded their efforts by adding royal to their name. So now they are the the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC. They unknowingly hammered the final nail in their coffins when they resisted the land reform efforts of Charles Parnell. It only confirmed that the RIC cared more about the Protestant landlords and their British masters. It was easy for the IRA to take this resentment and turn it into a powerful tool of boycotting and violence during the Irish War of Independence. By contrast, the DMP, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, consisted of 9,000 unarmed men who were primarily responsible with the policing of vice and crime specifically in Dublin City. Because they were concentrated in Dublin, were unarmed, and were not responsible for upholding British laws and institutions to the same extent as the Irish Constabulary, the DMP would not become a target during the Irish War of Independence. Part 2, England and the Home Rule Bill The English government did little to address the Irish people's needs, instead finding Ireland an annoying pain in their side. While Gladstone tied the Liberal Party to the concept of Home Rule back in 1880 because he seemed to have truly believed it was true to Liberal principles, it felt more like an albatross around the neck of Prime Minister Henry Asquith. According to Ronan Fanning in his book, Fatal Path, Asquith was an imperial liberal and disliked the idea of home rule as much as the Ulster Unionists. Also, if you are keeping score, Asquith was also the prime minister when England entered World War I, so that should tell you everything you need to know about him. Yet it was a promise he could not break away from because by 1910, the liberals had lost their parliamentary majority in the House of Commons and needed the support of John Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party. Redmond held Ashcliffe's feet to the flames and promised to support the liberal agenda only if home rule was passed, ignoring the desires of the Northern Unionists. Ashcliffe delayed as long as he could, making many backbreaking promises to the Irish, to the members within his own cabinet, and the British people. However, his strategy fell apart when the Parliamentary Act of 1911 replaced the House of Lords' unlimited veto with one that would only last two years. This meant that any bill that passed the House of Commons could only be blocked for two years by the House of Lords. The House of Commons passed the third Home Rule Bill in 1912. It created a bicameral Irish Parliament in Dublin, eliminated Dublin Castle, and allowed a number of MPs to continue sitting in the British Parliament. The House of Lords vetoed it. 
The bill was brought before the House of Commons again in 1913. It passed, but once more, the Lords vetoed it. In 1914, it passed the House of Commons the final time, and the House of Lords were bypassed, and it was sent for royal assent. Then, World War I happened. The implementation of the Home Rule Bill was postponed. James Craig and Sir Edwin Carson created the Ulster Volunteers to violently resist Home Rule, sparking the creation of the Irish Volunteers, and read, uh, John Redmond toured Ireland, encouraging young Irish men to fight for the British Empire in World War I. Everything came to a head in 1916 with Easter Rising and the creation of the IRA in Sinn Féin in 1917-1918. By 1919, Ireland was in a state of war, and if you want to learn more about that, check out my first season of my podcast where I go into great detail about those events. Part 3. The Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC. So, as we mentioned, in 1919, Ireland was ruled by the British government and military forces located in Dublin Castle. It was led by the Lord Lieutenant Lord French and the Chief Secretary Ian McPherson. Dublin Castle's primary role was to keep law and order within Ireland. This was usually maintained at the expense of the working class and Catholics. From the 1820s up to 1919, the castle employed the services of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, in their, requ- in their quest for colonial order. As I've mentioned, they are a quasi-military outfit with a central command and were known as the eyes and ears of the castle by 1919. It is estimated that from 1816 to 1922, the RIC employed 85,000 men at its height and were more and were majority Irishmen. Many of them were stationed outside of their home counties to avoid reprisals and, and intimidation. They were mostly farmer sons who took the job for the steady paycheck and prestige. They were armed with cavalry carbons and were responsible for spying on the people of Ireland to discover plots of rebellion. While the British thought they were the most effective force they had on hand, Easter Rising would prove that they were not as effective as they could be and that British intelligence in general was lacking when it came to Ireland. The RIC's effectiveness was further eroded by Sinn Féin's ostracization campaign. I talked about this in episode 3 of season 1, but basically... Sinn Féin declared that all RIC members should be shunned from daily society and treated as traitors to the Irish cause. By 1919, the IRA targeted RIC barracks, driving them from the Irish countryside into the bigger, more fortified barracks, cutting them off from their people and their spies. Recruitment dropped, intelligence dried up, and RIC officers were targeted by the IRA and Michael Collins's squad of assassins. Morale plummeted, and the British government grew concerned over the quote-unquote Irish situation. Then in 1920, the IRA burnt down 400 barracks and several income tax offices. There was a military force in Ireland of about 20,000 troops, but the British refused to acknowledge the conflict as a guerrilla war. As Prime Minister Lloyd George himself said, you do not declare war against rebels. This made a military response impossible politically, despite what Lord French believed. Asquith was replaced by David Lloyd George in the 1916 election, and he was a very different man from Asquith. He created a coalition government with some liberal and conservative support and saw Britain through World War I. He treated Ireland roughly, tried to force conscription on Ireland, which sparked the 1918 conscription crisis that wiped out the Irish Parliamentary Party and skyrocketed Sinn Féin to political power. So not a great decision. And he lost any goodwill from the Irish people by trying to force solutions to the home rule problem during 1917 to 1918. Lloyd George was exasperated and annoyed by the IRA in 1919, but he wasn't going to be chased out of the island by a handful of rebellious young men. 
He sent Lloyd French to Ireland to act as a military governor in 1919, but also kept his hands tied by refusing to grant him the ability to unleash martial law all over the island. Lloyd George claimed to be a home ruler, but he would not coerce Ulster into accepting home rule, and he, and he could not anger the conservatives who made up his coalition government unless he wanted to lose the prime minister's seat. Part 4, Parla Military Units, the Black and Tans, and the Auxiliaries. The British sent McCready and John Anderson to act as undersecretaries and rebuild the police force. However, when McCready arrived in Dublin, he gave up on the police instantly, creating a divide between the police and the paramilitary forces sent to Ireland to support them. And by police, I mean the RIC and the DMP. The British lack of faith in the local police forces led to the creation of two paramilitary units, the Black and Tans, and the Auxiliaries. The Black and Tans were first formed in January 1920 and consisted of mostly former British soldiers and officers who fought in World War I. There is no evidence they came from criminal classes, as has often been claimed. Given the situation in Ireland, the Black and Tans did not receive the proper training needed to handle a counterinsurgency, and when they were thrown into Ireland, they were thrown into a dangerous, confusing, and anxiety-inducing situation. It didn't help that they were not natives to, the, to Ireland, that they were, you know, British officers that came from elsewhere, so they really didn't know anything about the society. Their atrocities are well known, but seem to come from a lack of training as much as from a bloodthirsty hatred of all things Irish. An estimate of 10,000 men enlisted into the Black and Tans during the Irish War of Independence, of which 42% were wounded and 24% killed. Most members of the Black and Tans were Protestant working-class men who were either unskilled, semi-skilled, or manually skilled workers and received relatively high pay for their time in Ireland. They were called the Black and Tans because of their dark green and khaki uniforms. They were meant to serve as normal reinforcements for the RIC, but the moment the British passed the Restoration Order of Ireland, which is basically a light version of martial law, their policing turned into brutal and extreme violence. They were responsible for many reprisals and tit-for-tat assassinations that became popular in 1920. One of their most famous attacks was the burning of 50 houses in Balbriggan and the killing of two suspected quote-unquote Sinn Finners as retaliation against an IRA ambush in September 1920. They've also recently been connected with episodes of sexual harassment. While the Black and Tans deserved their brutal reputation, the Auxiliaries were worse. The Auxiliaries were a paramilitary unit of the RIC created in July 1920, made up of British officers. They were designed to act as a counterinsurgency unit, focusing on being a mobile strike and raiding force. Even though they were supposed to support the RIC, they were semi-independent of the local police, often acting on their own. This only exasperated the problems the British government was facing in Ireland and helped contribute to the intelligence failures and IRA victories. About 2,300 men served during the war, and they were deployed into the southern and western regions of Ireland, where the fighting was heaviest. Even though they were better at collecting intelligence than the RIC or Black and Tans, they did not share their intelligence with their sister organizations. They were known for their brutality and arson and were, were responsible for the burning of Cork in 1920, the Croke Park Massacre after Bloody Sunday, and may have been responsible for the assassination of Cork Lord Mayor Thomas McCurtain. While the Black and Tans and IRC were meant to serve within a policing cap capacity, the auxiliaries were meant to face the IRA head on. In late 1920 and early 1921, they would form their own flying columns and push the IRA back from the gains they made in 1920. However, like the Black and Tans, they suffered from lack of training, indiscipline, and fighting in a counterinsurgency before counterinsurgency was truly understood. 
They were also drawn into the bloody tit-for-tat game of assassinations and reprisals, but without an overarching strategy or better collaboration amongst their RIC, auxiliaries, and black and tans. They were killing for little reason other than that was what they had been hired to do. And this is like a classic counterinsurgency blunder. Have a bunch of forces in an area, they don't communicate, there's no unified command, they're just going out there, they're killing people, but there's really no assessment if they're having an impact, they don't understand the local um, politics or local culture, they have no way of really making that connection. Um, you know, if it sounds familiar, it's basically the U.S. textbook when it comes to uh, fighting insurgencies. Part 5, Truce and Disbanding The truce came as a shock to the British soldiers stationed in Ireland, and they felt betrayed by their commanders and government. They were bitter that they had to keep law and order and behave during the truce period while the IRA prepared itself for a protracted war. They often complained that the IRA broke the truce multiple times and should be punished. When the treaty was signed, it was expected that power would be transferred and then the soldiers would go home, but this didn't happen initially. There was a great kind of exodus of former policemen and former RIC, um, former Black and Tan and former auxiliary members, and Barrett's have ended up in hands of either the pro-treaty government or the anti-treaty government. Um, but there was also a core number of men um, in Dublin under the command of McCready, and there was, there was a genuine risk of those men restarting, basically, the Irish War of Independence. Because what happened is that the anti-treaty people took over the four courts, and Collins's government didn't really respond, they didn't really do anything, and Britain was like, what the hell is going on? And McCready had been ordered by Winston Churchill to attack the four courts. And McCready said, mm, no, that's not going to be good. You can't have British forces attacking Irish forces when Ireland just became its own, you know, dominion. Um, and so they stayed in Ireland for a little bit, and then the Irish Civil War happened, and then, you know, the pro-treaty side won, and then finally all the soldiers left. Um, but the handover, was it was it was very half-assed. It was not planned at all. And like I said, many barracks fell into the hands of anti-treaty IRA men as opposed to pro-treaty IRA people. And then, of course, you had the, the RICs who couldn't technically go back to England, right? Because their home was Ireland, but they had to deal with the continued ostracization and the continued black mark of being part of the RICs. And um, in a lot of the pension claims, they would they would supply uh, pension claims to both the Irish government and the British government, and many of them tried to resettle elsewhere in the British Empire, um, and some went north to Northern Ireland. Um, and again, they're just abandoned. It's very similar to the Protestants in Ireland and the Catholics in Northern Ireland. They were these political tools that to be used by the government to achieve the government's goals, but they were, for all intents and purposes, um, just abandoned and left to their own devices. And there were some, there were many reprisals against former RIC officers or, you know, supposed RIC officers by, by both the pro-treaty soldiers and the anti-treaty soldiers. After they left the island, they would leave behind a long-lasting legacy of brutality, colonialism, and a long list of unknown victims. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please join my Patreon, especially since I'm launching a book club now, so if you join now, you'll get announcements before anyone else. And uh, follow me at AOA Warfare on Instagram and TikTok. Until next time, wear a mask, organize your community, demand a ceasefire in Gaza, and stay safe.